Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Hey, I'm super excited to be back with you today. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. My name is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. Thank you so much for sharing out the podcast and giving us reviews and letting your friends and family know about what we're doing here at The Mission Driven Mom. It's helping our podcast to grow and we're certainly really grateful for that. Today we get to do something really fun. We're gonna talk about moral courage from one of the greatest experts of all time, Aristotle. Nicomachean Ethics is definitely a favorite read of mine and I'm going to do something a little different. I have a loose outline, but I've got a bunch of stuff of my favorite selections and quotes kind of um, highlighted in my book. And I'm going to thumb through my book and give you Aristotle's own words on what virtue is and how it works and how we can become more virtuous as individuals and families. So the first thing that Aristotle does in Nicomachean Ethics is he says, look, um, most mankind are, he says, they're slavish to their tastes and their appetites. And every time we let our appetites be in charge of us, we are acting more like animals than we are human beings and we're not being our noblest selves. So he begins by explaining that the thing that all people want for the sake of itself and not for the sake of anything else is happiness. And that happiness is an activity of soul in accordance with perfect virtue. That is such a fascinating definition to me because it accords with this older definition of happiness. I might've mentioned it on this podcast in the past. Uh, We won't get into a lot of detail on it today, but happiness was defined differently in earlier times, even just 100, 150 years ago in alignment with classical liberal education. And it was something that people could choose Happiness wasn't something that just happened to you. Happiness was something that you could choose into. And you did that by striving to become a virtuous person, that virtue always accompanied um, happiness and vice versa. And so happiness is an activity of the soul. And Aristotle works really hard over and over again to let us know that happiness is something we can definitely choose and virtue is something that we can choose. So we all want to be happy. And according to Aristotle, in order to be happy, we have to be virtuous. So what does it mean to be virtuous? And what are the virtues that we need to acquire? Now for Aristotle, the way to be virtuous is really pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's pretty simple. It's what he calls the golden mean. And you can look up the golden mean. It is a principle of science, art. It's it's a principle of finding kind of the middle way. And his point in talking about the mean in regard to virtue is that in his mind, every virtue has an extreme on one end or the other. We can do it too much or we can do it too little. 
And what we need to do is get more in the middle. And the closer we get to that mean, the more virtuous we will be. He says, it is no easy task to be good. For in everything, it is no easy task to find the middle. When anyone gets angry, he says it's easy to get angry. Or it's easy to give or spend your money. But to do this to the right person, to the right extent, at the right time, with the right motive, and in the right way, that is not for everyone. Nor is it easy. Wherefore, goodness is both rare and laudable and noble because it's hard work. It's an ongoing conscious effort that we have to be keyed into and be pondering and be intentional about. He says that one of the ways that we can begin to do this is if we can be honest about our natural propensities. And we're going to talk about some of these virtues and some of the ways that we go to extremes on them. If we can see what where we tend to on the extremes, then we can try to do the opposite. And doing the opposite will move us more in the middle. He says, for some of us tend to one thing, some to another, and this will be recognizable from the pleasure and the pain we feel. We must drag ourselves away to the contrary extreme, for we shall get into the intermediate state by drawing well away from error as people do in straightening sticks that are bent. So it's really kind of a simple way of thinking about it. So as we go through these virtues and we kind of define what the virtue is, and then we see what the two extremes are with that virtue, then we just recognize, wow, I really err on that side. So if I can be more the, uh, to the other extreme, it will bring me more in the middle and I'll be more centered. I'll be more in the mean. I'll be right in the middle of virtue. And as my virtue increases, so will my internal happiness in life. Um, now he he goes on to talk about how this is really a choice. In fact, he, he, send, he spends a whole chapter on how we can actually choose for it is thought uh, to be most ba- tightly bound with virtue, but we also choose to not be virtuous. The point he's making in saying that is that people who are not virtuous also chose not to be virtuous by not seeking virtue. Now the exercise is the, of the virtues is concerned with means. Therefore, virtue is also in our own power and so too vice. For where it is in our power to act, it is also in our power not to act. And acting or not acting is both a choice, right? So with that frame of reference for how happiness and virtue were tied together, He talks about two different kinds of virtue. He says there's moral virtues and there's intellectual virtues. And moral virtues are more inherently known and need to be sought by everyone. And then the same with intellectual virtues, but sometimes the intellectual virtues are a little bit dependent on circumstance and opportunity, whereas moral virtues are more universally understood and everyone is able to pursue moral virtue for sure. Now, the first moral virtue that he talks about is courage. And one of the reasons for this is because he says we need courage in order to be virtuous in order to try to pursue any of the virtues. 
we have to be courageous. And he says something here that made me really think differently about courage and about fear and faith. I'd never thought about it this way. And it makes total sense because I've read, you know, a lot of self-help and we know enough about the brain to know that the brain cannot move away from something. It can only move towards something. And so, you know, they always talk about, for example, don't say to your kids, don't trip over that thing or don't run across the street because when, every time you say something like that to someone, it creates a mental picture and the mental picture is of the thing that you said. You can't imagine not doing it. You can only imagine doing something. So you have to say something like, hold still or stay on this side of the road. And that's what you would envision. But if you say, don't cross the road, actually the person envisions crossing, crossing the road. They have a picture of the thing that you've said to them. And so courage is about really for Aristotle, it's about choosing faith because faith is action and fear tends to be inaction. But he, he puts it this other way that's really cool. So he says, fear is an expectation of evil and faith is an expectation of good or right. I had never thought about it that way. And so fear then causes indecision and inaction, but faith causes decision and productive action. So when you're fearful, you expect something bad to happen. And when you're faithful, you expect something good to happen. And when I thought of fear and faith that way, it really helped me to reframe the way I was thinking about myself in my life and to choose faith more of the time because I recognized that it was simply expecting something good or expecting something right. And every time I wasn't acting and every time I, you know, really analyzed a situation where I didn't like the results, it was often because there was fear and I expected something bad to happen. Um... So he goes on to say that a brave man is as dauntless as man may be. Therefore, while he will fear even the things that are not beyond human strength, he will face them as he ought and as the rule directs for honor's sake. So to have courage is to be able to recognize the right action and to do it regardless of how you're feeling. Um, courage is noble. Therefore, the end is noble for each thing is defined by its end for the brave man feels and acts according to the merits of the case in whatever way the rule directs. So I thought that was really, really cool. He says the brave man, on the other hand, has the opposite disposition for confidence is the mark of a hopeful disposition. So he says people who have this first and kind of overarching virtue will be hopeful people, confident people. Um, you will be able to identify the right action and you will take the action to bring about a noble end. But when you're fearing, you don't have a goal in mind. You just have an expectation of some kind of evil. So we have to start with courage. Um, I loved this too. He kind of mentions this in passing as he's finishing off um, his this section on courage. He says, Sudden actions must be in accordance with the state of one's character. So you take daily actions, you know, you act, 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 act. And in that way, you're building your character and you're living in harmony with virtues or you're not. And the more you do that and shape your character, then when you're called upon to act suddenly in like a crisis situation, then your character 
is really exposed. You only have the ability to act in harmony with the character you've developed. And you only have the ability to bring to bear the virtues you have developed in any kind of crisis or difficult situation. And that's why when things aren't in crisis and things are pretty okay in our lives, it's the perfect time to work actively on developing these virtues. And so, so the way that you can get more in line with this virtue of courage and practice more courage is to first of all, focus on, um, having a noble end in mind and having an expectation of right being done or being come about. And that will help give you the courage to act. And the extremes of this that you could move away from are that you tend to act really rashly and you just don't take, you just throw caution to the wind and you just do whatever in any kind of circumstance, you know, you just, you don't take the time to think through the decision and what would be most prudent and what would be the right action. You just act without identifying the right action. And you kind of think of yourself as, as really, you know, confident and really courageous and, and acting out in the world and doing really big things, but without really understanding the principles that you need to act on, you're not really acting courageously. And the opposite of that would be inaction. You're just really apathetic about it. You don't really care to find out the right actions to take. You just don't do anything about it. You just kind of let bad things happen or you let life be what it's going to be. And you don't step up, try to find the right actions and take the right actions. And so if your tendency is just to kind of let things go because you don't like confrontation or you don't want to take the actions that need to be taken, you need to just start acting, be more inclined to act and take the time to try to find the right action. But, but you know, that will come as you just act more. And if your tendency is to act really rashly, then you should slow down and try to work harder at finding the right actions before you do anything about any kind of given situation that, that requires courage. And you know, one of the situations I think that requires the most moral courage on our part is our relationships. We interact with people every day, all day, and we're so afraid of what they're going to think. And we're so afraid of like losing our job or hurting someone's feelings or uh, making a, sit a hard situation worse or whatever the, sit whatever the case might be, that we tend to really have a lot of lack of courage when it comes to our relationships and not go to the people and have the hard conversations and be honest about where we're falling short and take responsibility for that and apologize and all those things. So just kind of something to think about in regards to having greater moral courage. It just might be as simple as making an apology that you've been putting off and trying harder in a relationship that needs your attention. So some more of these um, moral virtues. The next one is temperance. And these are really for Aristotle. These are kind of the bodily pleasures, especially touch and taste. And we need temperance in this way because the extremes, of course, would be to be pleasure-seeking all the time. And the other extreme would be to never have fun. And we don't want to be either of those people. I err on the side of working too much and not having fun. And so I actually consciously make lists. I ask family members what fun things they'd like to do. I try to actually, I'm such a planner, I try to put it in my schedule so that it will happen. 
And so I need to be more temperate and move into the center by trying to have more fun and seek out more pleasures in my relationships and for myself. Um, he said, a temperate soul is one that loves honor and learning. And so we want to um, be in the mean here. He says that um, we can either be led by our appetites or we can be um, someone who never does anything funny. He says most people err on the side of self-indulgence, but there can also be people that don't have enough fun, like is my problem. And so we want to be temperate in those things and keep within those healthy, healthy bounds and find the means for the pleasures of life because they do have a place and God would like us to have a good time and he would like us to enjoy the bodies we've been given and, and to enjoy the, the foods and the, and the beauties of the earth, but in, in the right amounts in the right way, kind of like that list he gave us in the beginning of doing the right things, the right time in the right way. The next virtue that Aristotle touches on is what he calls liberality. And it kind of has to do with your um, physical means, the things that you have access to in terms of the amount of money that you have, but also kind of like the resources that you enjoy. He says, um, now by wealth, we mean all the things whose value is measured by money and prodigality and meanness are excesses and defects with regard to this. So we could either go give it all away or use it all up and again, be kind of self-indulgent with the resources that we have and the money that we have, or we could err on the side of giving it all away. And I have, I have some family members that are just really, really, really generous, but Often to a fault, they tend to give too much money away, whereas I tend to not give enough money away. And so I, again, make conscious efforts. I, you know, kind of, I grew up poor and a penny saves a penny earned. And I tend to just kind of be worried and overly frugal. And so I've been learning the last few years to be more generous and to find that mean by just giving money away. And it is funny because they say, that the more generous you are, the more abundant that you are. And I really have found that to be true as I try to find ways to give more money away and to be more generous with my means. I really do find a lot of it returning to me. We can't do it with that intention. I had someone reach out to me once um, and tell me that her husband was going to, uh, we were talking about principles of money and uh, finance. And she said that they had talked about it and her husband was going to quote, try out philanthropy for three months. And if it didn't quote work, then he wasn't going to do it anymore. And I said, you just can't live principles that way. You can't decide that you're going to try it on and see if somehow you benefit from it. And if you don't see an immediate benefit to yourself, you're not going to do it anymore. Um, and so that's definitely not been my intention, but the person who is really liberal, according to Aristotle's definition is the person who is self-reliant and generous. Cause he says here, for example, um, the liberal are almost the most love of all virtuous characters since they are useful and this depends on their giving. Virtuous actions 
are noble and done for the sake of the noble. Like I was talking about, he, he emphasizes that again and again. Our intentions do matter. We want to be a noble soul. We want to be the best that we can be. And so we seek to do the right thing for the right reason. He goes on to say, nor will the neglect it, nor will a liberal person neglect his own property since he wishes by means of this to help others. So you have to be, again, wise and do it in the right amount, in the right way and find that middle ground where you are taking care of your own needs so that you don't become a dependent. You stay independent, but you're also very generous with what you've been given and use what you've been given to bless other people, which I think is a really cool virtue. The next uh, virtue that is something that we don't really talk about much today, you can see it exemplified in the world if you're kind of keyed into it and know what it's, what it's about, but he calls it the virtue of magnificence. And he says, you can't be magnificent, you can't have magnificence um, unless you're liberal first. So it kind of is added on to being having that liberal virtue where you have that self-reliance and you're generous. It's kind of like a, a public virtue type virtue where you see the needs of the society around you and you're keyed into being kind of a wealthy benefactor. You don't just give money where you see a need or where it sounds fun to give, but you target certain areas of your society and you actually, you know, build buildings or schools or, or give to causes that build up your the society around you and maybe you do this anonymously maybe you put your name on it but you're recognized kind of as a public benefactor he said the magnificent man spends not on himself but on public objects so that's kind of a cool virtue we don't think about much today it's uh he sees it as an even higher virtue than just managing your money well that you try to get to the point where you can really be a benefactor to your community and to your society which is really, really cool. Another virtue, moral virtue that Aristotle touches on is what we would call, he calls it pride. We would probably call it a proper pride. And um, the two extremes of this proper pride to help you understand it a little bit better are on the one side, you would be arrogant. And on the other side, you would be unduly humble. And so we don't want to be either of those things. And I think this paragraph kind of describes this virtue best. He says, um, even those who are not thought to be bad, for they are not malicious, but only mistaken. For the unduly humble man, being worthy of good things, robs himself of what he deserves and seems to have something bad about him from the fact that he does not think himself worthy of good things and seems also not to know himself else he would have desired the things he was worthy of since those things are good. Yet such people are not thought to be fools, but rather unduly retiring. Such a reputation, however, seems actually to make them worse. For each class of people aims at what corresponds to its worth, and these people stand back even from noble actions and undertakings, deeming themselves unworthy, and from external goods no less. So I just want to pause here for a minute and kind of rephrase what he said and emphasize something really important. Sometimes we've gotten feedback on the Mission Driven Life book. And honestly, all I'm doing is sharing stories from the Ten Boom family and cataloging those and helping you understand laws and principles that they lived that made them such a powerful force for good, first in their home and then their community and then in the world. But many people have 
I don't know if I should say many. I've gotten some feedback from some people that as they shared the book with some people, they have said, oh, I could never do that. I don't want to be a leader. I could never do those kinds of things. It's too hard. It's too overwhelming. And I just want to take a minute here to say that I absolutely agree with Aristotle. When we are unduly humble, when we don't desire things that we really do deserve, and when we stand back, this is my favorite part, when people stand back even from noble actions and undertakings, deeming themselves unworthy, that is, in my opinion, not really acting like a child of God. If we are really children of God, then we are worthy of noble actions and deeds, and we are capable of partnering with God to bring those noble actions about in the world. And maybe we have some work to do, and maybe there's some principles we need to live in order to get ourselves to that place. But I really believe that God would have us seek out the best that's in us, and that he would have us strive for a proper pride. He would have us strive to be a confident, courageous, temperate person who has this virtue of liberality and this virtue of temperance and courage and, and a couple others I'll go over so that we can really bless the lives of the people around us and be the best that we can be. So I know it can be scary, but of course, fear is the expectation of of evil, of bad things. And we want to have faith. We want to expect good things. So we want to expect that if we step forward and strive to increase our virtue, that, that God will help us make up the difference and become more than we were. Now, the next virtue that uh, Aristotle goes over is a good temper. What he means by this is that we're not what he calls hot-tempered, choleric, or sulky. So we're not the kind of person that just flies off the handle all the time. And you just never know what you're going to get because maybe they're going to lay into you when you just thought you were saying something neutral or normal. They're not the kind of person that's um, complaining all the time and never happy with anything. Oh, that's just such a drag to be around. And they're not someone that's sulky and kind of self-deprecating and um, kind of making everything about them and hard to please. So we don't want to be any of those things. We want to be friendly. We want to um, be complimenting others in a, in a true and honest and sincere way. We want to um, not boast about ourselves, but to focus on others in our social interactions and be good tempered. And that, of course, again, is the middle of the ground. We don't fly off the handle all the time and we're not super sulky and negative all the time. Now, the next virtue that he touches on is truthfulness. And I think because he's written so many things about principles and truth, he doesn't spend a ton of time on this. But those, um, those that have the virtue of truthfulness are focused on the truth. And they don't think that they've, you know, they're not on the two extremes where they think they've already got it all figured out or they think they could never get there. They are genuine truth seekers who want to find and adopt and live according to truth. Um, 
It says, those who pursue truth are falsehood alike in words and deeds and in the claims they put forward. So we don't boast, we don't mock, we don't um, push the truth aside when it's right in front of us. We are actually have the virtue of truthfulness. The next one is justice. And this is a really cool one. He, it's almost an umbrella virtue, kind of like courage is. I'm going to read you this section because it's, it's really cool. He says, in one sense, we call these acts just that tend to produce and preserve happiness and its components for the political society. The law bids us do both the acts of a brave man and a temperate man and a good tempered man. Uh, similarly with the other virtues. And we should rightly frame laws that will help us to do right. Hastily conceived laws uh, will not do this. So he goes on. This form of justice then is complete virtue. And therefore justice is often thought to be the greatest of virtues and is wonderful and proverbially in just as every true, true virtue comprehended. It is complete virtue in its fullest sense because the, it is the actual exercise of complete virtue. So justice is complete virtue because we create environments through being just that help to produce and preserve virtue, which creates the greatest amount of happiness for ourselves and for people around us. So as parents, we are lawmakers and we make laws in our home and we exercise justice in our homes. And we want to create environments that produce and, pre and preserve virtue. And so the better we understand virtue and its extremes and what those key virtues are, the better we can frame laws and rules and plans in our homes that will help to preserve and produce true virtue. Of course, the extremes of justice would be that you're a micromanager and you make a whole million rules and you think you have all the answers and you tell everybody how to live their lives every second of the day. <laughs> That's not justice. Or the opposite of that would be to just not care about it. To not love yourself and love the people around you enough that you try to discover those right actions and you try to put rules and laws in place that will honor those. You just don't care about justice happening at all and therefore injustice happens because there isn't that environment that you would have created a just environment. Now, the last one that he goes over is equity. And this is something that I didn't really understand very well until I studied some uh, government and economics many years ago and taught that. And equity is such a beautiful principle um, and a virtue because it corresponds kind of with these other virtues, but also especially with courage and justice. This is kind of what he says about equity and think about yourself as a parent and in the places where you have to exercise justice and how this virtue of equity brings an element of greater fairness or greater justice to the situation. When a law speaks universally then and a case arises on it, which is not covered by the universal statement that it is right where the legislator fails us and has erred by oversimplicity to correct the omission, to say what the legislator himself would have said had he been present and would have put into this law if he had known. Hence, 
The equitable is just and better than one kind of justice, not better than absolute justice, but better than the error that arises from the absoluteness of the statement. And this is the nature of the equitable, a correction of law where it is defective owing to its universality. So as an equitable parent, if you live the law of justice and you also couple it with, I mean, the virtue of justice and you couple it with the virtue of equity, then you understand that there will be exceptions to the rule in your home. And there will be times when you have to change the way a certain law or rule is executed in your home because there's an exception in a certain case. And you want to be truly just and truly fair in the, in the biggest, broadest way. So those are the moral virtues that Aristotle puts forward. We may be able to argue that there's other moral virtues, but those are the ones that he treats in his work. And then he touches on the intellectual virtues. I'm only going to quote you on two or three of the things that are kind of my favorites that he has to say about the intellectual virtues as we finish up. One intellectual virtue is science. And the way he defines science and art is so fascinating to me. It's just worth pondering. He says, scientific knowledge is a state of capacity to demonstrate. So in any situation where we want to break something down and understand it fully and be able to demonstrate how things really are, then we're working in the scientific realm. Art is different from science in this way. All art is concerned with coming into being, with contriving and considering how something may come into being which is capable of either being or not being and whose origin is in the maker. So art is simply bringing something into being. So we're all scientists. We all have the intellectual ability to demonstrate and we all have the intellectual ability to bring things into being and be an artist. And if we think about science and art that way as intellectual virtues with those definitions, then we'll think really differently about ourselves. And there's so many ways that we can develop our scientific abilities and our artistic abilities, those virtues that develop our minds in certain ways. So super cool. The last thing that he, one another thing that he touches on is wisdom. He says, it follows that the wise man not only knows what follows from the first principles, but also possesses truth about the first principles. So one of the most important, maybe the most important intellectual virtue is wisdom. And he also talks about practical wisdom. Wisdom is a knowledge of first principles and bringing those first principles into practice. Possessing truth and knowing how to live out truth is an intellectual virtue that's developed through reason and thought and practice and brings those moral virtues really into play as we are truly wise. Um, he goes on to say, virtue makes us aim at the right mark and practical wisdom makes us take the right means. So wisdom shows us the first principles and the truth and practical wisdom is putting those principles into place, into play in our lives and practicing them in a practical way. So virtue gives us that goal that we're going to aim at and our practical wisdom, our knowledge of those first principles empowers us to do it the right way, use the right means to get there. I want to end with this awesome quote near two or three quotes near the end of Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle that um, kind of 
encapsulate much of what he said throughout this whole work. And uh, they're really beautiful. He says, if reason is divine, then in comparison with man, the life according to the divine is in comparison with the human life. So as we develop our intellectual virtues, we are becoming more divine. He goes on to say, so far as we can make ourselves immortal, we should strain every nerve to live in accordance with the best thing in us. I absolutely love that sentiment that we strain every nerve to rise to the occasion and live to be live according to the very best that's in us. And then with this, I'll end with this. Now, if you take away from a living being action and still more production, what is left but contemplation? Therefore, the activity of God, which surpasses all others in blessedness, must be contemplative. And of human activities, therefore, that which is most akin to this must be most of the nature of happiness. In other words, for Aristotle, there's a God and his greatest activity must be contemplating, thinking through things, finding truth, striving to live it. And this contemplative life is where we find ourselves most akin to God and where we find great happiness as we find those virtuous aims that we'll be aiming at and then begin to live the truth that we've discovered to become more virtuous human beings and thereby create greater happiness in our lives. I hope this information was helpful to you. If so, please share it out, put it up on social media, give us a review. Thank you so much for joining me today. And if you don't have your copy of The Mission Driven Life, please head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab your free copy of that book. And I will see you next time.